and welcome to Device Week, a podcast from MedTech Insight. I'm managing editor Elizabeth Orr, and with me today are senior writer Brian Bassetta and senior reporter Ferdoso Farouk, who many of you know as Danny. Today, we have coverage of two major ongoing stories, Medicare coverage of breakthrough devices and ongoing FDA user fee negotiations. Danny, let's start with you. You and I attended the first in-person AdMed MedTalk conference since the pandemic began in Washington, D.C. What was the vibe? Yeah, as you know, the AdMed MedTech conference is probably the biggest industry-wide annual conference there is. Typically, you have the biggest MedTech companies like Medtronic, Boston Scientific, Edwards Life Sciences, and others setting up booths at these conferences, trying to outshine each other and show off their pipeline. But of course, with the pandemic, that didn't happen in 2020, and it really didn't happen this year either. This year was a hybrid event that involved part of the conference happening in Washington, D.C., part of it in Minneapolis, Minnesota, and most of it still happening online. While I have to commend AdvaMed for trying to bring some normalcy to this conference, it still felt a little lackluster. The presentations didn't have a lot of new information or the energy they typically do, and really the point of these conferences is to meet people face-to-face and network, but that is really hard to do when most of it is online. Last year, the conference was planned to happen in Toronto, Canada. The hope now is that we'll go to Toronto next year when the pandemic will be under control and we'll be all in person then. I think everyone is keeping their fingers crossed that that's what's going to happen. Thanks for that synopsis. I was hoping to ask you about the FDA town hall that you attended. You got to ask CDRH Director Jeff Shuren about the ongoing Medufa negotiations. Can you tell us about that? Yes. So the most important event for any medtech regulatory wonk is the FDA town hall. It's a chance for the FDA to talk about what they have been doing to help the medtech industry get products to market and what they envision for the future. It's also a chance for people in the industry to directly ask questions of FDA heads like Jeff Shuren, Tim Stenzel, and Bill Mizell without a lot of bureaucratic red tape. Shuren, as usual, took the lead and talked about how the pandemic has affected the device center's work. He continued to highlight that despite the massive added pressure on his staff, they have been pushing through and getting new products to market, especially novel devices. We've done a lot of reporting on everything he highlighted, so I'm not going to go into all that. Our readers can look up all that on our website. The thing that I was most interested in is how the medical device user fee amendments negotiations, or MEDUFA 5, is going. For industry, it's the most important topic since most of their future business relies on how much they'll be charged in user fees for pre-market applications and what they get from the FDA as a result. As our readers and listeners may recall, we have been reporting on the delayed negotiations between the FDA and the medtech industry over the past two years. Things seem to have gotten back on track earlier in the year, and we were getting meeting minutes updating us on what each side was thinking. However, since a particularly contentious meeting between the FDA and industry in late April, we haven't heard anything, which in itself makes me think, and I'm editorializing a little, that the negotiations aren't going all that well. Both sides are supposed to agree upon the meeting minutes that are made public, but historically, that meant we would get the meeting minutes a month after they happened. But it's now been four months of nothing but radio silence. Anyway, at the AdvaMed meeting, Sharon and other FDA staff attended virtually, and I asked Sharon what was going on. I highlighted specifically that there was disagreement between the FDA and industry over how the FDA has used carryover fees to upgrade its IT system and the FDA's proposal to create a total product lifecycle advisory program. 
Shuren didn't directly address those issues, but instead said he anticipates the meeting minutes will be out soon. Now, he made those comments on September 27th, and today is October 1st. We'll see, I guess, what soon means. Uh, I'm presuming that after four months, they must have the final meeting minutes somewhere. I will add that the FDA did publish a Medufa independent assessment report yesterday of how the current Medufa program is going, which was put together by Booz Allen Hamilton. I'm looking through the report and we'll write a story on it, so I recommend our listeners go check that out. The report will likely be a part of the ongoing negotiations to highlight whether the FDA is able to meet its current Medufa obligations. Thanks for staying on top of that, Danny. Brian, you watched a MedTech conference session on Medicare Coverage of Innovative Technologies, or MSIT. CMS announced in September that it was withdrawing the proposed rule on MSID, which would have automatically given four years of Medicare coverage to devices cleared by the FDA's breakthrough device pathway. But CMS withdrew it, saying the proposal lacked a mechanism to provide the necessary evidence to establish a device's safety and efficacy. With MSID's path forward unclear, a panel of experts met during AdvoMed's MedTech conference to discuss possibilities for future Medicare coverage of innovative devices. So, Brian, what were some of your key takeaways from this panel? Well, for one, the path forward isn't so clear. There's uh, been a lot of ideas tossed around lately about finding a replacement for MSIT that gets the same basic results. That is an expedited process for getting these devices covered. Such as? Cures Act 2.0, the follow-up to the 2016 21st Century's Cures Act, which had a lot to do with medical research and FDA regulations. Like MSIT, 2.0 creates a similar transitional coverage pathway for breakthroughs. Wait, but why do we need that pathway, sort of a sped up process for these devices? Well, according to Aparna Higgins, senior policy fellow at the Duke Margulis Center for Health Policy, who moderated the panel, the volume of breakthrough devices approved by the FDA has gone up significantly over the past several years. Just this fiscal year alone, the agency has received 84 new requests for breakthrough designations and has already granted around 30. So it's important to make these devices as readily available to as many patients as possible because of the promise they hold. Promise meaning better health outcomes? Yes, but also the potential for reducing healthcare costs. But despite the upside to these devices, Higgins noted there are still a lot of questions about their long-term safety and durability and how effective they are in the real world, particularly the Medicare population. Oh, why is that? Well, it comes down to a lack of real-world evidence, not just clinical data. As Higgins explained it, a lot of patients enrolled in clinical trials don't really represent the general Medicare population. So the data from the trials that the FDA uses to approve a device may not be sufficient for making coverage determinations. Exactly. Exactly. And then not having this real-world data might make doctors a little more hesitant in using these devices in treating their patients. And what's more, without a solid reimbursement structure set by CMS for these devices, will likely mean fewer breakthrough technologies coming to market. Sounds like a real um, catch-22. What's the answer? A better way for collecting real-world data and getting it to CMS. At least that's what the experts say. And how does that happen? Well, Both Cures 2.0 and MSIT stress the need for real-world evidence, but as the panel pointed out, both fall short. How so? Starting with MSIT, CMS lacks the authority to define the clinical parameters for what could either narrow or expand national Medicare coverage, and there's no requirement for collecting real-world data in the rule. So it just ignores the role of real-world evidence? 
Well, it's it's left up to the manufacturers to collect it. Or not collect it. Right. So if real-world data is not collected, then the optimal data needed won't be there when CMS makes its coverage determination. Gotcha. But what's the shortfall with the Curious 2.0 legislation? There's no mechanism in place to terminate coverage during the transitional period if safety concerns come up. And the transitional pathway, as it's laid out in the legislation, lacks guidance on data collection. And those seem like some clear roadblocks. Particularly with MSIT. This issue of evidence standards, or lack of, is what's driving the momentum for repeal. As Higgins put it, the standards for evidence used by the FDA for safety and efficacy and those used by CMS to determine coverage are not aligned. So basically, there's not really a way to ensure that there will be sufficient evidence upon FDA approval that also outlines the benefit-risk ratio for Medicare beneficiaries. In a nutshell, one of the panelists, Joel Carroll Hyatt, a VP at the Medical Device Innovation Consortium, who worked directly with new technologies in one of her prior roles at Kaiser Permanente, said data collection was the most important issue any legislation had to address. And that's real-world data collection. Yes. Although Hyatt didn't discount clinical trials, none of the panelists did. She said data from clinical trials was absolutely valuable and necessary in making coverage determinations. But it sometimes just isn't enough. Correct, especially when evaluating new technologies, because it's very hard to accurately predict outcomes in a real-world setting, such as a Medicare patient population. Just too many factors that administrative data can't account for. I see. Uh, Did you get any perspective from a device manufacturer? Yes, Christina Jackson with Medtronic. In her view, alleviating these concerns around evidence development would not only benefit companies like hers, but CMS as well. Oh, how so? In a word, predictability. For example, requiring manufacturers to include a catalog of evidence to date supporting the device they're submitting to CMS, along with identifying any gaps in evidence as well as the device's study design and any reports to the agency detailing any safety issues that might come up, would not only give CMS more data to help them make a determination, but would provide the manufacturer with a clear set of markers to follow. And this predictability, this more defined process, in her view, would also give CMS some oversight as well as insight into generating data. So that sounds like a win-win. Definitely. Louise Jacques, the chief clinical officer at Advi, who also had a five-year stint at CMS as the director of the agency's coverage and analysis group, said Jackson laid out the fundamental framework needed to go forward because it allows CMS to have some say in the matter. So at least in the case of these two panelists, you have a device manufacturer and someone with leadership at CMS in agreement. True. It'll be interesting to see how much agreement there is among various stakeholders as this moves to a conclusion. Indeed. All right. Thanks, Brian. Um, Obviously, there's plenty to pay attention to going forward in both of the areas we discussed this week. Listeners, you can check out all of our U.S. FDA and other regulatory coverage at medtechinsight.com. And for all the latest MedTech policy regulation news and analysis, you can follow us on Twitter at MedTech underscore Insight. The archive of Device Week and the rest of Informa Pharma Intelligence's podcasts are available on the Informa Pharma Intelligence channel on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, TuneIn, Spotify, and other fine podcast platforms. For now, thanks for listening. <laughs>